Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Good day, friends. It is a privilege, a pleasure, and an honor to welcome you to yet another episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and buckle up. Today, we are going to go deep. I have had the very unique privilege and pleasure of interviewing someone who, uh, I, I don't even know how to start this. I am so impressed and amazed. First of all, her name is Mitzi Purdue. And if you've not heard that name before, I can guarantee you're going to have heard a little bit about her background. Uh, her family started the Sheraton Hotel chain. And that was her, her father. And she was married to Mr. Frank Purdue of Purdue Chicken. So those are a couple things that might tell you a little bit about uh, her background. She grew up in a, in a place where there was wealth. And our conversation today, you would think that it would be about something like that. <laughs> and granted, there was one little mention of, of Purdue chicken in there, and it was kind of a joke when we did talk about it. Uh, today's conversation, as I share this, is actually very important and it's very serious. There are some places today where we go pretty dark and pretty graphic with some stories. And why I want to share and put the disclaimer up front is because today's conversation is about the human trafficking that's happening in the Ukraine. And Mitzi knows this because she went there firsthand and witnessed it. Now, as someone of her stature, she went incognito, but people didn't know who she was when she was there. But she saw some things and she relates these stories in detail and had me in tears at times. So prepare for this because there are some challenges. On the other side of that, she speaks with so much purpose, so much conviction and passion. When she shared that she was 81, uh, it surprised the heck out of me because her youthful exuberance is on display for the entire discussion. This might be a good episode, as good as any, to go and watch on our YouTube channel as well because she brings such life and spirit and such optimism. She truly is an eternal optimist. To get to that light, we've got to go through some of the dark that will blow your mind. These are the stories you don't hear in the news. The media won't cover this. This is something that someone who has the ability and the influence to make things happen, so to speak, she's doing that. So you'll notice on our show notes today that there is a page where you might be able to donate to this cause. Uh, just wait until you hear it. This story is deep, the story is rich. It goes in a number of different directions uh, and it is my sincere pleasure to introduce to you uh, a woman who needs no introduction, Mitzi Purdue. Please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast. 
the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. And with that introduction, it is my real honor and pleasure to introduce someone who might not need any introduction, Mitzi Purdue. Mitzi, welcome to the podcast today. Well, it's a complete joy to be on, especially since I believe that I'm not sure how long the distance is, but I believe I'm following Mark Victor Hansen, maybe a week or two ago, whenever. Yes. Well, we might start and I might ask you, uh, what is something about Mark that uh, you find endearing or just causes you to love him? What's something great about Mark? <laughs> well, I like to joke that I'm the world's greatest living authority in Mark Victor Hansen, the chicken soup for the soul guy. And the reason that I dare say that is I suspect there's nobody else who's interviewed more than 100 people trying to find out what makes Mark Victor Hansen tick. And I did this because I was writing a book on him. It's called Relentless, and it came out last month. Yay! But to answer your question more specifically, I have something that I take to be astonishing about him. I'm 81 years old, and I've never seen this before in my career. I interviewed more than 100 people about him. I interviewed people who love him, people who've had tangles with him, people who've been in lawsuits with him. I have to say that the majority are people who just admire him to the outer limit. But here's what I take to be the amazing thing. I'm a journalist by trade. I did everything I could to be as accurate and honest as I could be. And that means describing Mark Victor Hansen and his struggles, warts and all. You know, just telling it as accurately as I could. I sent the manuscript to Mark before sending it to the publisher with the idea that I'd give him a chance that like if I got a date wrong or spelled a name wrong or something that he'd correct it. Here's what I was expecting in light of my past experience as a writer. I expected that he'd go through the thing line by line and every negative thing about him, try to have it removed. That's what I was expecting. Here's what happened. This man, Mark Victor Hansen, didn't even ask to have a comma changed. So I challenged him. I said, yeah, this isn't what I was expecting. And he said, if we don't tell the bad, if we don't tell the challenges and the difficult part, it's not going to be useful to people. So, and this is him speaking, I'm fine with leaving it just as it is. And I think it takes a really, really big person to have in print stuff that isn't flattering and not try to change it. I've never met anybody who was that big of a person. That certainly says something about Mark and also about you giving him that opportunity to read it. And thank you for that opening about Mark. I'd love to go to one of the thoughts you'd shared right there about the challenges. And I'd love to kind of turn the lens back to you, Mitzi, and if you could share it with us. What's a challenge in your life? You can go back in time. You can go right now. Oh, let's go with right now. I'm just back from Ukraine and I was invited there because of an article I'd written in Psychology Today about human trafficking in Ukraine. It turns out that the head of 
the Kiev region police. And this is his name is Gen- General Nebitov, and he has 6,000 people under him, so he's a big deal. He had written his master's thesis on human trafficking. So what I wrote in Psychology Today about human trafficking somehow came to his attention. Woo-hoo. And I had the most amazing Zoom call. General, General Nebitov, Nebitov invited me to come to Ukraine to see for myself. And I'd love to tell you some details of that, but since you specifically asked about what I'm struggling with right now, I ended up after five days in Ukraine feeling that there's a completely untold story about law enforcement in Ukraine and how the Russians had a great big giant psyop, psychological operation, trying to demoralize the people of Ukraine as much as they possibly could. And they did it, among other things. But one of their top priorities was to bomb the police stations, to destroy the police vehicles, to steal or destroy their communications equipment, to empty the prisons. And the reason they did this was to demoralize everybody. And so I personally got to see bombed out police stations, destroyed cars. I got to see this great, big, huge story. And my challenge right now is I want to help them. Uh, So what I'm trying with all my heart and soul is to raise funds for a very specific thing. Right now, as I mentioned, General Nebitov wrote his master's thesis on human trafficking, and that's why I came to his attention, and that's why I got invited there. I'm going to describe a situation that I saw there and what I'm trying to raise funds for, and I want to raise it like 5 or $10 at a time. I mean, I'd love to have somebody write a check for 80000 but I don't think that's going to happen. I'm going to describe what I personally saw and then how the police have a way of doing something about it. I arrived at the border of Ukraine. It was from Poland and into Ukraine, a city called, or a town called Medvika. At Medvika, I'm crossing the border, and the border, by the way, it's part of it is like a dirt road. You expect the kind of border you might see, I don't know, in the United States, but no, it was kind of ramshackle, but millions of people have crossed this border. Before I got to the station where somebody, like, stamps my passport. I saw about a quarter of a mile away from me. I saw a silver sprinter van, two really pretty girls talking with two kind of attractive Ukrainian guys. I assume they were Ukrainian. And the person that I was with, I was actually with a a guy whose specialty is intelligence, so he can see things that are invisible to us, but his specialty was human trafficking. He said, as I'm looking at these two girls who are being handed into the Sprinter van, he said, you're looking at traffickers. Those girls think that they've made it maybe a five-hour trip to the border, and they're going to be in Poland, and they've reached safety finally. But those two guys, they're traffickers. Tonight, those girls are going to be raped dozens of times. They're going to be sold for sex by the traffickers. 
And pretty much the rest of their life, unless they're rescued, which is highly unlikely, they're going to be forced to have sex with strangers like 12 times a night for the rest of their lives. And their lives are probably going to be pretty short because the life expectancy of a woman who's trafficked, could be a guy, by the way, but there's two girls that I saw, their life is going to be cut short by overdose or suicide or that might be murdered for their organs. Well, I'm watching this thing quarter of a mile away and I'm wanting to do something, but the distance is so great, not any possibility. But on top of that, the intelligence guy that I'm with said, don't keep looking, keep your eyes straight. Don't even acknowledge what you've seen because we're talking, I think it's a $150 billion industry, the sex trafficking there are some really good bad guys around here. And if you're going to try to break their rice bowl, they're going to go after you. And there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you may end up pulled into a van and have your organs sold. And but to this day, I'm just haunted by those, you know, what's happened to those girls. And, you know, you wish, 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 wish you could do something to prevent the fate. But you know, I'm completely helpless. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, we cross over the border, and I learned from additional people why it was that those two girls were so vulnerable. And here's what happens. There are two sides to the border. There's the Ukrainian side. There's the Polish side. On the Ukrainian side, and this was pointed out to me by the guy, this guy pointed out something that would have been invisible to me if, if work pointed it out to me. He showed some guys who were lounging around, sitting in some chairs, talking in their cell phones. He said, and by the way, he's a specialist in reading body language and he knows what's going on. So here are these guys, hot summer day, with their cell phones. And he said, notice, they're taking pictures of young women, preferentially ones with children, and they're going to send those pictures to the traffickers on the other side of the border saying, look, here's a live one coming. They're, the spotters tell the traffickers on the other side who to look out for. And the traffickers, yeah, they, they've been doing this a long time and they're extremely skillful at doing something like the following. They see a girl and the spotters are already told the, the trafficker, yeah, there's a girl, look for the blonde one with the yellow blouse in this picture. She's probably been on the road five days. I can tell by, yeah, the spotter is saying, I can tell by the condition of her shoes that her clothes are rumpled. She's looking kind of dazed. She has a hundred yard stare of just showing that she's out of it. That's a good one. Get her. Oh, well, this is what my friend Steve is telling me that we're looking at, and yet it would be invisible to you. You just think, oh, it's three guys talking on the phone. Nope, it's traffickers. And I learned not just from Steve, but from other people, that very often the woman who is a target for the traffickers, they want somebody who's completely exhausted and demoralized. They want somebody who maybe her home was bombed and is rubble. Maybe she hasn't had a good meal in a very long time. Maybe she's absolutely terrified because she doesn't know what's happened to her parents, her family, maybe her husband. 
Yeah, she's just, she's at wit's end and she's as vulnerable as a person can be. The traffickers have been alerted that she's about to cross the border and they may do something like the following. There's several things that they regularly do. One of the things is they can put up a sign saying help is this way and she follows it. Or maybe they just come up to her and say, gosh, you and your daughter look as if you could use a hot meal. There's a shelter in the nearby city. Get on the bus. It's leaving in 10 minutes, so hurry. And she gets on the bus, and the bus is actually that sprinter van that's going to take her to the traffickers. So the traffickers prey on the most vulnerable people in the world. It's just so heartbreaking. Okay, so I've told you the bad. Let's hear and switch focus into what can be done about it. I have heard from General Nebitov, the person who, who invited me to come to Ukraine. You know, this isn't going to solve it for everybody, but it could save many hundreds of future victims each year. One of the things that the traffickers have going for them is they kind of take the victims by surprise. They, yeah, the victim has no idea that trafficking is even a thing. They're tired, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're scared. And here's this nice older person probably quite attractive, who tells them, congratulations, you've made it to safety. This van will take you to the shelter. The victims are just as vulnerable as you can get. What if, before they cross, what if there were members of the nearby community, with the help of police, who would tell people who are looking vulnerable, would like you to come to a shelter for a day? And we will give you a place to stay. We'll give you counseling. We'll give you hot meal. And these are uniformed police people who are, who are trustworthy. Take a while to have a pause because otherwise, here's what you could be up against. And then they explain traffickers. And if that woman who she's been traveling for ten, five days, she's scared, she's terrified, she's hungry. If she could have like a 24-hour pause in one of these shelters, she could talk with counselors, she could be warned what she's up against. Uh, she just wouldn't be vulnerable to the traffickers. And so where do these shelters come from? Well, it turns out that they are old buildings that could be rehabbed. There's one that, the one that I'm raising funds for, and I'm raising $10 at a time, and I think I've got like $20,000 right now. And again, if somebody wants to give more than that, great. But please get a pencil and paper or your, your iPad handy because I'm going to give an address to go to where you can give a small amount or a big amount for $80,000. I think I can say we can do this wonderful thing of creating a space that has 20 beds in it and where there are counselors and there's food and where people like the two girls that I saw as I was entering Ukraine where that wouldn't be happening. And imagine, yeah, just imagine if you could contribute to a girl not being sex trafficked. Oh, and I, I want to add something that I left out. Why do they preferentially pick women with young children? Because to get the girl to cooperate to begin with, they threaten to kill the child unless she has sex with all these strangers. You know, the most vulnerable person around is the exhausted, tired, terrified young woman who's with her child.
But imagine if you could save. I mean, I think I'd die. I'll tell you what I'm doing to help with this. My late husband, Frank Perdue, the chicken guy, he gave me my most precious possession. It's one of the larger perfect emeralds in the world. And Frank Perdue was helped finance treasure hunters. He was part of finding the treasure ship, the Atocha. And boy, are we jumping around. Are you okay with this? This is going to circle back to trafficking in a minute. Yes, please continue. Okay. Oh, I love to hear that. Thank you. Are you married? I am for nine years. And uh, as you're describing things, Mitzi, if I can just share what I'm feeling right now, I haven't said anything because I'm in a state of shock. This is a world that I know nothing about. I can hear about it on a website or as a talking point. I've never been exposed to it with the depth you're sharing right now. And it is literally breaking my heart as you're talking about this. I cannot imagine with three young daughters myself. And I can't imagine any of the circumstances that you have described just sound utterly heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. And I'm sorry that you had to see what you saw. But it sure energized me to spend the rest of my life doing what I'm doing. And by the way, I was joking about you being married because guess what? I'm 81 and I'm not on the market unless it's somebody who's Ah. 82. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But back to the Atocha Emerald. I'm putting it up for auction to raise money for helping rehab several houses. And I'm doing this because... The emerald itself is kind of famous. The Atocha, and I guess nobody knows what the Atocha is, but it's a treasure ship that sank in 1620. And it was enormously historic when this treasure ship sank. It was the king of Spain back, and again, we're talking 1620. He was in all sorts of financial trouble because he was financing the Thirty Years' War. It was a war between Protestants and Catholics. And the Spaniards had invaded uh, South America, also the Philippines and a lot of other places, but they simply went around stealing or collecting treasures from the New World. And the treasure ship, the Atocha, it had on it, in today's dollars, $2 billion worth of treasure. Whoa. I mean... It was enough to keep an empire going. It sank. Oh. There was a hurricane, and off the Florida Keys, this thing sank in, I don't remember exactly how deep it was, but it was like 180 feet, give or take. However, it was the divers at the time, they knew exactly where it did sink, and the divers could get within like six feet of it, but it was at a depth that was just beyond what any diver could get to. So for hundreds of years, the the treasure ship lay at the bottom of an area near the Florida Keys. Well, Frank, treasure hunters had known about this thing for hundreds of years, and they were all trying to get it. Frank helped finance the guy who finally was able to find the treasure ship at Tocha, and as one of the major backers of it, Frank got enough of the treasures of it to have an ongoing, it exists to this day, exhibit at the uh, Smithsonian. And then there's a whole museum about the Atocha in Delaware. And Frank and his best friend together, they were both financers 
of this expedition to find the Atocha, Frank kept for himself one of the world's larger, near-perfect emeralds. When we married, he gave it to me. And it's a famous object. And it was also very, very historic because it was meant for the Queen of Spain. And when the treasure ship sank, the King of Spain couldn't fund his uh, wars. And Spain had been the world's superpower up to that time. But when the treasure ship sank, the bankers throughout whoever was loaning him money wouldn't loan him money anymore because he didn't have the money to pay them back. He started going broke, and that was pretty much the end of Spain as a superpower. It began a downward spiral from which it never recovered. So the treasure, the emerald, it's just one of the more historic things that any of us is likely ever even to touch. Well, I'm putting it up for auction hopefully around Christmas time. And I hope it goes for, well, I don't even want to guess, but a lot of money. And every penny of that will go to support having more and more of these shelters that could keep women from being trafficked. Because, by the way, there are lots of, I told about Medvika, and there's this shelter there. I think they're already starting work on it, but they, eh, they need more money. But if my uh, emerald sells, we'll be able to help lots of shelters. But I, do you know what? I want donations partly for the money because my emerald isn't going to solve the problem. It will help. I want donations not just for the money, but I would like to be able to report to the people in Ukraine that a lot of people have put up money to support Ukraine. And just this morning, I was on a Zoom to Ukraine, to the person from General Nebitov's office that I'm acting with. And he said that if we could do something about these shelters, help create them and help attack the human trafficking problem, he said he will personally assure me that this will, just throughout Ukraine, that this will be celebrated and it will be a great big media event. And my dream is not only to provide money, but I'd love to be able to say, hey, a thousand people donated $10 each or whatever. I want the people of Ukraine to know that the people of the United States really care and are there to support them. So I care about numbers almost as much as I care about the amount. So in case people have a paper and pencil ready or show notes. Both. We'll put it in the show notes and please give it to us now. Okay, anyone. the place to go is the letter U as an under and then let, L-E-T. So U-L-E-T group. So uletgroup.org. And when you get there, there will be a place that will show you where the money's going and it will give you a chance to do PayPal or a credit card. And any amount counts. It's partly the money, but it's partly the support. I would just love to have the people of Ukraine know that, that the United States really cares and you know, it's there for them. And to be able to contribute to this, yeah. But I've talked with well bunches of people who tell me, I wish I knew what I could do to help Ukraine. Here's your answer.
Here's what anyone can do to help. No matter what size of a donation it is, anyone can help and be a part of it. And a lot of people might ask that question, like, how can I help? They have no idea how. This is how. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I don't know if PayPal has a lower limit, but if they accept a dollar, I want your dollar. <laughs> I know because I tried it out. I know I can donate $10. We'll get this up as soon as possible. And I want to go back and just to make a couple of notes here. One, you have a very eloquent grace about you, Mitzi, being able to take us into a very emotionally challenging place and then bring it back to the light. Actually, can I bring it even further back to light? Please, please do. <laughs> okay, because we've been to a very dark place. Let me make it lighter. And a reason that I personally have a lot of hope for Ukraine, because I mentioned earlier that the first thing that the Russians did when they would invade a, a town or city, they would bomb the police station, destroy the police cars, destroy the communications, the, empty the prisons, everything they could to make people feel even more vulnerable. Because I could easily guess that most of us don't realize how important police are, but when the prisons are empty and Criminals are robbing, stealing, murdering, raping. You're more vulnerable than ever so that, oh dear, we're getting dark, but it's going to get light. Okay, so it was a psychological operation destroying law enforcement to make the people in Ukraine even more vulnerable. So how well is it working? I have a reason to think that it's not working at all. I mean, it's traumatic, but have they destroyed people's spirits? I have reason to think that it hasn't. And I'm afraid you'll think that I'm nuts, but here goes. I have my fingernail polish theory of why uh -oh. the Ukrainians are going to prevail. It also involves roses and bread crumbs. And I hope you're curious how I'm going to tie all that together. Super curious. Yes. Okay. One of the things that I noticed my first day there, there was a woman from the media department of the Kiev regional police. And I noticed, yeah, she's under all the stress in the world. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how people endure so much stress, but nevertheless, I was struck by the fact that she had beautiful red nail polish. And I'm thinking, if she's really keeping herself up, even though it's such a stressful time. The next day I saw her, she'd actually changed her nail polish. They were different colors now. Very fashionable, uh, you know, like one fingernail might be the color blue from the Ukrainian flag, another yellow from the Ukrainian flag. She actually changed her fingernails, and that made me start noticing everywhere I went from now on. And I believe that I saw 90% of the women that I would meet, like in restaurants or even the restrooms of restaurants, parks, stores, office buildings, a lot of police stations, I think 90% of the women that I talked with were wearing nail polish. And yeah, this was very puzzling to me because if you're under that much stress, how do you have, how do you have the spirit to, to do this? Well, I was talking about it after I left Ukraine, like a day later, I had the privilege of talking with a professor uh, who teaches about, he's a sociologist, but he teaches, uh, we're in London right now, or an outskirt of London. And I was telling him how puzzled I was that the women were still, had the spirit to keep 
making themselves look nice. And he said, it's a fairly well-known phenomenon. He said, I'll give you an example from World War II. It's a very famous one. There was a man who was in one of the death camps. They were starving him to death. He had come in weighing 200 pounds when he was finally rescued. He weighed 130 pounds. And yet every single day, he would save a couple of breadcrumbs from the meager rations that they gave them, and he would put them on the window of his jail cell, and a bird would come and every day would like visit him and eat the breadcrumbs. Well, the man, when he was finally rescued, he said, I owe my life to that bird because the beauty of that bird, the freedom, the connection that there's a better life out there, it kept me alive. And the man also went to say that the people who didn't have a will to live, very all too often they didn't make it. That when you have beauty in your life, that it's something that can give you the will to prevail. Well, my view is that the ladies with with their fingernail polish, they were kind of giving a giant F you, or I'll say it in Russian because I learned this phrase, Idi Nahui. They were giving a big Idi Nahui to Putin by by not giving in, not having them not being demoralized. And I saw other examples of this. The biggest one on the subject of beauty and not being demoralized, I'm going to share with you the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, And we're going to go dark for a minute and then it will get much, much lighter. But I got to be within, at a guess, like seven or eight miles from the border of Belarus, which is the area where the Russians invaded crossed the border from Belarus into Ukraine. And I got to see a bummed out police training center. Let's see if I can paint a picture for you. Imagine your own home and imagine that somebody has dropped an incendiary device that turns your home into a furnace. It burns down the partitions, all the furniture, the lighting, just there's nothing but rubble on the floor because your home has turned into a very high heat furnace. One person was estimating that to do that much damage, it had to be over 2000 degrees. So I'm standing inside this bummed out hellscape where even half a year later, you can still smell the kind of acrid, smoky stench that comes from Everything that you see is there, rubble on the floor, like five inches thick, has, is there because it's been burned. The windows are blown out. The doors are blown out. It's as depressing as you could easily think of. But the chief of the training center took me out the door, the bombed out door, and we walked maybe, I'm going to guess, maybe 90 feet, kind of turning like a corner and suddenly I see a rose garden with all maybe, I don't know how many, you know, just eyeball it. I'm going to guess there could be 25 rose plants and they were all flowering. And from like one of the ugliest sites you can see to a beautiful garden and the flowers, they've been well tended. Everything's weeded, watered. It's just beauty. And The chief, he had some clippers with him and he clipped a rose 
and handed me what has to be one of the most precious things in his life. And I look at this beautiful thing, I smell a fragrance, and I realize he's not giving in to being demoralized either. He's clinging on to a little piece of normalcy. And why do you fight? Why do you resist? Well, you do because there's a better life. And I think that his is exactly the same thing as the girls who wear, or the women who keep their nail polish fresh and beautiful. It's clinging on to what's beauty, what's beautiful. And that led me to, to notice that, like, say if I'm walking through one of the parks, even in a small village or in Kiev itself, there were flowers everywhere. Somebody had gone to the trouble of weeding and and just taking care of the flowers. And the reason that I'm personally convinced that the psyop of trying to demoralize the people and destroy their will to fight, the reason I think it's not going to win is nail polish and roses. They symbolize, to my mind, that, that Putin has not crushed their spirits. He's made them sad. He's made them discouraged. I'm told that something like a third of the population even has PTSD from the trauma that they're going through. And yet the streets have flowers on them. He has not crushed them. And that's why I think that the Ukrainians are going to prevail because I'm trying to think of the best words to describe it. It's partly will to live, will to prevail, connection with what could be. And then I do think that it's a great big giant Edi Nahui, Mr. Putin. And I think we remember what Edi Nahui stands for. In case there's somebody for whom that isn't clear, but for you because you're a nice person and you don't use that kind of language, but it, what it really stands for is, and here I'm going to say it right on your podcast, see if you get censored, it's Mr. Putin, go do something anatomically impossible to yourself. <laughs> Oh, man. I know that my producer was getting ready to push the bleep <laughs> button. I, I, you, you, made it, uh, you made it safe for kids and everyone. And wow, this is a conversation that uh, has changed the way that my view is of the world. It's been eye-opening. It's been amazing. And you are amazing, Mitz. Today's episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast is brought to you by a mantra. Success is not measured by what you get. Rather, it can be measured by what you give. Friends, what are you offering to the world? What are you giving in times of time, money, attention, bringing happiness, removing misery? What are you truly offering the world outside of yourself? What can you offer? What can you give? Today's sponsor of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. Yeah, I'm amazed by one thing that kind of stands with me. You shared earlier when you shared that you're 81 years of age, and that was a big shock because for a number of reasons. One, you're sharp. You have a radiant energy. You're full of life. You have this passionate just uh, conviction around this cause. And I wonder, kind of just something that's tickling in the back of my mind, how have you maintained this youthfulness, this exuberance that you have for life. Because quite frankly, I don't see many people who are 81 years of age who have this level of just 
youthfulness, this energy, this sharp acuity. I mean, you have this. I wonder how you've been able to maintain that. Well, I have a joking answer to it that I'll give first and then I'll give a serious one. You know that my family's in the chicken business. If ever somebody asks me, uh, don't look your age, I answer, eat chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Eat Purdue chicken. (laughs) (laughs) The secret to looking young. (laughs) There's another link in the show notes where you can get some chicken. No, (laughs) No, actually, I'm um, I'm loyal to my family's brand, but I'm not really out to sell chicken. Yes, I am. But a, a more serious answer. Oh, no, I have another joking one. I forgot to grow up. Okay. (laughs) With you. Good. Okay. But a really serious answer. I have a purpose in life. And the purpose in life is I would really like to increase happiness and decrease misery to any extent that I can. It's tied up with a motto that I have, that success is judged not by what you can get, but by what you can give. And if I want to be successful, if I want to increase happiness and decrease misery. And by the way, attacking human trafficking seems to me a way of decreasing misery. If I want to be, do all that I can, yeah, success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give. And by the way, I made up that slogan. If I want to do that, then I have to have energy. That means eating right. That means exercising even when I don't want to. It means being fairly careful about I'm getting like seven and a half hours sleep or eight if I'm lucky. I'm pretty careful about health habits. I'm not against adult beverages, but I probably don't have more than... I never drink alone, but if I'm out with people, I'm good for one glass of wine or if we're really celebrating two glasses. But I don't think in in 50 years I've had had three glasses of wine. Oh, and then I'll continue. My biggest health theory has to do with eating. And that is, whenever you have a choice, and that's a very important thing because you don't always have a choice. Whenever you have a choice, choose the less processed food in preference to the more processed food. Because I think an awful lot of the food that you'd get in, I don't know, a 7-Eleven or a fast food place, an awful lot of that is It has so many ingredients, and I don't think our bodies were meant to metabolize things. I think our genes never planned to encounter a big slurp or a big gulp or, or for that matter, candy or fried foods. If I had been driving all day and I go into a roadside equivalent of a 7-Eleven or something and I'm starving, at that point I don't have a choice. I'm going to eat stuff that is highly processed. But when I do have a choice, I always choose the less processed. Thank you. I want to build on what you just shared because my wife and I, we subscribe to that philosophy that you're sharing about eating unprocessed food. And we actually started that journey together where we now get everything from a local CSA. I forget that stands for. It's a local farm. It's all organic. We get our food from there now and we intentionally have cut out all the added sugar. So we've cut out all the the hot dogs and the chicken nuggets and anything with high sugar for the kids too. And they whine and complain for a couple of days, but then they accepted it and we we're healthier. We've lost a few of those love handle parts of the body and we feel fantastic. And I think a lot of it is to what you just shared. And it's great validation or affirmation to hear that from someone who is so sharp and healthy that by starting to do that now, it may lead to 
this level of focus. And to hear that you have maintained a strong commitment to the purpose, the purpose of, uh, I think that uh, success is not measured by what you get, it's by what you give. And if you're giving happiness and removing misery, then certainly that would be a measure of high success. I love what you say. Thank you. I'm such a believer in when I'm tempted, I don't know, to eat a candy bar or donut or something, I think long-term, that's not going to make me, give me the energy and the well-being that it takes to achieve my life's goals. So actually, I'm no fun at all. Well, I don't think so. Your anatomically correct statement <laughs> shares that you have some fun. That's for sure. Well, Mitzi, you've graced us with your presence. We greatly appreciate that. Before I ask you how we might find out more, I'd love to ask one more question. You have the most beautiful sunflower in your background right now. And I'm curious, if you could tell us a little bit why that sunflower and what might that mean to you? Oh, you picked on something that I adore. It's a silk flower, but it actually was given to me. In, when the policeman gave me the rose, it was a real rose and it didn't last very long and I didn't have any place to put the rose, even though he was giving me among his most precious possessions, and which, by the way, has given me just a passionate desire to give back reciprocity. Well, I was sort of saying how sad I was that uh, that I couldn't keep the rose. And at that point, I was in a car with several people, including, actually, they had assigned bodyguards to me the whole time. Whenever I was outside, outside of the hotel, there were four men with AK-47s and a place plainclothes policeman, because it turns out that I was a high value target, but quick back to this. So I was with a group of people and they knew that I was sad to not be able to keep the rose. So we were at this little rest stop and this silk flower was, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of them, but they bought it for me and oh, I love it, love it, love it, love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, but if we have time, I'll tell you, people have asked me, Were, weren't you scared to go to Ukraine? And uh, nope, it was an adventure. But I did have a moment where I sort of had a, like a real awareness that there's a war going on. My first night, I had been warned at the hotel to have a go bag, G-O, a go bag, at the entrance of my hotel room. And the idea is, was if there was an air raid, that my job was to have my passport, my papers, my wallet uh, handy in a bag that I could just grab and then run to the stairwell and go down, I think it's like eight flights to the bomb shelter. And I'm thinking, oh, that's just, yeah, that'll never happen. Except it did. At two o'clock that night, the air siren for Kiev goes off and the, the hotel announces, uh, make your way to the bomb shelter, don't get dressed, don't do anything, grab your go bag and go down to the bomb shelter. And while I was in the bomb shelter, I learned some phrases. And let's see if your editor is going to need to remove this, uh -oh. but... Watch out. <laughs> Watch out, everybody. I learned what poo is about, but poo stands for point of origin. When there's an air raid, all the professionals want to know what the point of origin is. And in this case, they were pretty sure, I 
think I recall them saying it came from the Black Sea, but I'm not sure. In any case, they knew where it was from. And yeah, you're sort of curious what the Pooh is, the point of origin, but what they really care about is P-O-I, the Pooh, point of impact. And there was this uh, rocket heading towards, actually it was a cruise miss. Well, okay, I'm not sure. There was a rocket in any okay. case heading for Ukraine. And again, don't hold me to the exact numbers because I wish I'd written them down. But I think we had like three minutes, possibly five, before we'd know where the thing did hit. Uh, wow. I, I wasn't worried because Ukraine has a population of several million people. And I thought the, the odds of me being picked out of Three million people. I'll take that those odds any day. So I wasn't particularly worried. There were about 20 people in the bomb shelter, and uh, some of them were worrying. I was very interested to talk with them and find out where they were from. You know, it's just a strange situation to be in a situation of mild danger. I mean, in the bomb shelter, we weren't in that much danger, even if it had hit very near. It's a strange to be with a group of strangers in a situation that could be really dangerous. There was a young boy and his parents were comforting him. And it, it was just, I, I was interested because I've always wondered, you know, how would I react in a situation of danger? And to the best of my knowing myself, I think I was busy with my reporter's cap trying to record what I was seeing rather than feeling scared. That's as honest as I know how to be about what it was like. We were there, by the way, for probably an hour because there was one rocket that was let off and then another and that we, we were to wait until we got the all clear. So I think we were there an hour. I'm curious in that one hour, when you had the reporter's hat on, you were thinking and maybe taking some notes and that hat was on. I'm curious, just your overall experience with the others. Did you meet anyone and talk with anyone else in there? Would you kept yourself? I mean, what's the general environment like when 20 people are in a bomb shelter in a foreign country? I've been coached to give absolutely no information about myself. I think I mentioned that I'm considered not just a high value target, but like ultra high, because there's something called the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group, that is, they're known as Putin's children. They're mercenaries and their specialty, among other nasty things that they do, is they kidnap people and hold them for ransom. And they'll do things like to make the people who they're asking to pay, they'll cut off your ear and send it to them. I mean, they, they're not nice people. And since I have a famous last name, I was considered worthy of a lot of protection, but I was coached. Don't tell anybody what you're there for. Don't even give your name. Don't say where you're from. If somebody asks you, where are you from? East Coast. Okay. Uh, what are you doing here? Humanitarian aid. Admitting to being a journalist wasn't the cards. I made it, uh, any conversations I had were very one way. I got to talk with people who, like there was a neurologist who was there kind of studying PTSD. There were several people, well, they were from all sorts of different countries, but of the Americans I spoke with, there were people who were ex-military and they're not going to tell me what they were there for either. But I had something really, to me, fascinating happen the next night. I was at the restaurant of the hotel, and a couple of the intelligence people, or the ex-military people, 
were at my table. And they were, as far as I can tell, I mean, they treated it as lightly as a parlor game. They were challenging each other how quickly they could find out who each person in that bomb shelter was. And here's what they'd do. They'd pick out their cell phone. They'd go type stuff really fast. And then, like, 90 seconds later, they'd pull up a Facebook in which they'd show me the picture of the person that they were identifying. And I could confirm that they had the name and lots of information about each person there because I could see the faces that they'd pull up and show me. So I now know that somebody knows what they're doing can find out a lot about you, even if you don't tell them a single thing. And I don't know how they do it, but I can assure you that they did do it. And they were having a lot of fun kind of showing off to me. Look, we got him. Oh, yeah, the little girl. Mm, here she is. Oh, her mother. Mm, here she is. Goodness gracious. Technology. Wow. You've taken us on a journey. It's been dark and necessary to share. And there's been a lot of light as well. Well, there uh, is something we can help that we can do to help this awful situation. And every name... I think people can donate anonymously, but if they want to donate with their names, uh, can make sure that when Ukraine has, actually, it's the person who told me this is the media person from the office of General Nebutov. When they make a big fuss over the money that's raised for these shelters, and I'm told this will be in newspapers throughout Ukraine, I could give a list of however many names I get. I think, and anybody who wants to be anonymous, fine. But a friend in need is a friend indeed. And I just want to show the Ukrainian people that they got friends here. Mm, fantastic. Thank you, Mitzi. You shared the website earlier, youletgroup.org, uh, U-L-E-T group.org. And we'll, of course, have that in the show notes. Uh, are there any other places that we might go, any other websites, social media, any place else we might be able to find you or, or anything you're up to? Well, like please to come to my website. It's mitzipurdue.com. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Oh, and uh, we started off today, Relentless, your oh, new book out as well. Yes, please come to my website or even better, come to Amazon. And uh, this is a story of Mark Victor Hansen. It's his biography. And he told me that he felt that I had captured him. So this is the real guy. And for those of you who don't mark, know Mark Victor Hansen, he's in the Guinness Book of World's Records for selling half a billion, and that's with a B, book. And his co-author, there's nobody besides those two who've sold that many nonfiction books. And this is the story of how he did it. And it went from that man, 144 publishers turned the book down before the 145th said yes. So he really was relentless. And to me, that's one of the secrets of success, just to keep on trying. Mm. Fantastic. Well, thank you. We'll also have a copy and then the show notes of uh, you know, the, a link to Relentless on Amazon. And uh, Mitzi, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for sharing the, your truth and sharing the story today. We love you. We appreciate you for sharing that. And uh, having said that, I'll give you the last word as I say thank you. Okay. I told you that I wasn't in the market. But on the other hand, if you weren't married... <laughs> oh, thank you. It has been a real treasure, real joy. Thank you, Mitzi. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.